All right, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to the 26th chapter of the book of Acts. Luke, the physician, wrote the gospel, his story of Jesus, and then he continued with the history of the early church. And so there are details, because Luke was such a a methodical physician, there are details that, that we have of how the church began. And um, the passage here in Acts 26, verses 12 through 23, is a story about the vision that Paul had on the road to Damascus. Now, Paul had this earlier, as recorded in Acts, but then he gives his testimony a couple times. And I think it's helpful for us to see how he goes about doing that, starting with verse 12 of Acts 26. He's telling the story, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of chief priests. At midday, O God, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining round me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? It's kind of a, that question answers itself, doesn't it? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and bear witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I shall appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I shall send you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Wherefore, O King Agrippa, this is who Paul is giving his testimony to. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those at Damascus, where he was going, then at Jerusalem, and throughout all the country of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds worthy of their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that being, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to the people and to the Gentiles. Paul is giving his testimony to King Agrippa, hoping that it will stick. Let's bow. Father, as we come to you this evening... You have given us a vision of Jesus and you have called us to proclaim that vision to the world. And so now we want to be faithful to it and we want to be obedient to it because when you command us to do something, there's only two choices, either obey or disobey. And we want to obey, Lord, with every ounce of our being, every fiber Under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we pray in your name. Amen. A missionary gave a copy of God's Word to an African man, and the African man was deeply grateful for the Bible and thanked the missionary profusely for that precious gift. And several months later, the missionary went back to that village and saw the man, and he was puzzled because the Bible he had given him him, looked like it had been tattered and torn. It looked as though it was abused and many of the pages in it were missing. 
And so the missionary said to the man, I thought you were going to take better care of the Bible I gave you. I thought you wanted it. And the man said, oh, it's the finest gift I've ever received. In fact, it's such a wonderful gift that I gave a page of it to my father and a page to my mother and I couldn't stop there and I gave a page to everybody in the village. So he was sharing it with everybody. That's a testimony to the power of God's word. It's so powerful and it's so wonderful that it compels us to give it away, to share it with the people around us. God gave us the gospel. He gave us good news, not to sit on, not to keep, not to hoard, but to give some here and some here and some there and some there. At the heart of our faith is a call to share the gospel. And incidentally, that's why John is, is so adamant right now on tell someone by Greg Lowry, tell someone. We believe that the gospel is so simple that everybody can share it with somebody. And so just six short weeks, Sunday morning during Sunday school, Sunday night during worship, Tuesday morning, Tuesday evening during faith, Wednesday night during discipleship, just going through a little process just to help us get comfortable so that as we go through our day in conversation with others, can learn how just spontaneously to tell somebody about Jesus. Paul was on the road to Damascus. And there God gave Paul a challenge to share the word. And it was a challenge he accepted and he spent the remainder of the days of his life doing just that. The first um, account of Paul's conversion is in Acts chapter 9. And then twice more in Acts 22 and right here in Acts 26, Paul recounts his testimony. Do you remember I was saying this morning that, that one thing no one can argue with is a changed life. And so when Paul is giving a defense of the gospel, when he is preaching the gospel, oftentimes he will go back and just tell, look, I can't explain it. I don't know what happened. All I know is what he did for me. And when you tell somebody that story of what Jesus has done for you, it's a story that no one can argue with. And so he recounts the events of his conversion. And in this particular event in Acts 26, the new Roman governor, Festus, has invited King Agrippa to Caesarea to hear Paul's case. Paul's on trial. And so Paul stands before King Agrippa and he recites the story of the greatest event that occurred in his life that led to his conversion while he was going to Damascus to persecute Christians. And he tells of going there and arresting Christians and, and his desire to bring them back to Jerusalem to, to prosecute them and to basically to put them to death. And while he's on the road at midday, a light from heaven, he said, brighter than the sun begins to shine upon him. And he and all those accompanying him fell on their knees. And he hears the voice of the Lord. And in those moments, lying on the ground, Paul makes this dramatic transition from unbelief to faith. And the voice of the Lord instructs Paul to rise to his feet and to go and bear witness of Christ to the people. Not only it says to the people, but also to the Gentiles. In other words, to everybody. It's a, he's to carry the life-giving word throughout the world. And in verse 19, Paul says, Wherefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And in obedience to that vision, he walked 
through the world the rest of his life, going on journeys we call three missionary journeys today, distributing the word, calling people to light and life and love in Jesus Christ. And so in response to that, I'd say to you three things tonight. The first thing is we need to have a heavenly vision. We need a vision of reaching our world for Christ. It seems like Sunday nights has, have kind of taken on a missions theme, haven't they? We've had reports from mission trips. Uh, we have some more mission trips to share in coming weeks. But, but tonight, we just need a vision of reaching our world for Christ. And that's the vision that God planted in Paul's heart. God said, I will deliver thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I will now send you. Paul was like most of the Israelites in his day. He didn't have much of a vision for Gentiles, for those different from himself. There was a world of need out there, but Paul was blind to that need. He only saw the Jewish people. And when God revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus, those scales fell from Paul's eyes and suddenly saw the whole world in need of a savior. Likewise, there are five billion people in the world today and the chances are that we are blind to many of their needs. We have a, a, a way to stereotype people because they're over there and we're over here and, and we have God's blessings over here and they don't seem to have much of that blessing over there. It's like we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. We wear the white hats, they wear the black hats. And Jesus undoubtedly would want to spend his time with us. After all, we're the good guys. And yet when you read about Jesus here on earth, who did he spend his time with? He hung out with the bad guys. They couldn't keep him from hanging out with the guys that wore the black hats. He just refused to keep his white hat on and stay where he belonged. He was always out there. He loved them. He cared for them. He wanted to be with them and he ate with them. And now here he is, even after his ascension to heaven, telling Paul, don't forget the Gentiles. You get up, Paul, and you go over there and you tell those Gentiles about me. So you have to understand this transition that has to take place in Paul's life because not only was he a Jew, he was at the top of the Jewish pyramid. His vision was only for Jewish people. And here is God telling him, break all those barriers down, Paul. See everybody as somebody for whom um, Jesus loves and who needs him. He says in verse 18, go and open their eyes because people without Jesus are like blind people without Christ, but with Christ are able to see for the first time that they may turn from darkness to light. It's like emerging from pitch black darkness and blinking your eyes into brilliant sunlight. I saw people this morning leaving the sanctuary, coming out in front of the sanctuary where the sun was shining and they were putting their sunglasses on and they were squinting because it was coming from the, the shades of the vestibule out into the bright sun. That's what it's like when you come into the light of Christ. From the power of Satan to God. Because Satan, what does Satan do? He kills and steals and destroys. But God puts us under new management, under new administration to receive Forgiveness of sins, still in verse 18. The awful past that Jesus can restore and make clean. And to receive an inheritance. 
sanctified by faith in me. Those people who have nothing become heirs of all the riches of God. That's what can happen when we share the gospel with the world that is lost in sin. My nephew Kyle um, has been living out in Colorado. He loves the mountains. He loves the snow. He loves to ski. And when he's not snow skiing, he's working in a hotel or a restaurant or something like that to make more money to ski some more. There's a mountain out there called Mount Shasta in California. He named his dog Shasta. He loves it. And there's a remarkable tree on that mountain called the Shasta fir. And in his early life, it is twisted like a bush because there's a heavy snowpack on Mount Shasta that reaches 20 feet during the winter months and it batters and presses that plant down so it has to twist and turn and struggle to survive. But when winter is over, that tree, as it continues to grow, eventually becomes strong enough to survive and peek through the snowpack. And it, then once it begins to point like an arrow, straight as an arrow into the sky, once the victory is won over the snow and the weight of the snow, the straightness of this tree is unmatched by any other tree in the region. So in the summer, you can see this distinct difference between the lower part of the tree that is twisted and misshapen where the snowpack did its best to pack it down and distort its growth with its crushing weight and gale force winds. But then this, the straight vertical growth in sharp contrast to the twisted beginnings. When I heard that story, I thought about our lives that start out twisted and distorted by sin. But when Jesus comes, we reach above that weight and we can go straight and tall and it's never too late. And that's the vision that we have to catch and be obedient to, to share with the world. It's a vision of what people can come can become, it comes from the heart of God. It was God who broke into Paul's life. God broke through to him on the road to Damascus and he gave us a commission and the vision to go and tell. And Paul says, and King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision. And from that point on, Paul's life was a life of obedience to the vision that God gave him. And if we're gonna catch a vision of our world for Christ, then that vision has to come from God because God has a vision for the entire world from the depths of his own heart. And our prayer would be that God would give us that vision, that prayer for everybody. Whom did God leave out? Nobody. Whom did God send Paul to? Everybody. Whom does God send us to? Everybody. He gives us a vision. Why are visions important? Secondly, because they chart our course. They give us an agenda. They cannot be confined to just a, a private religious experience. It's nice to, to be on a mountaintop and, and have a, a great vision, to have that relationship with God renewed and restored. But in the course of Paul's life from the Damascus Road until his death 35 years later, Every step of it was determined by the vision that God had given him. The vision was not an end in itself. Paul didn't stay on the Damascus Road and just continue to bask in that heavenly sunlight. 
that was the beginning. Paul didn't return to the Damascus Road trying to reproduce and relive that vision over and over again. He spent the rest of his days trying to live out what God had instructed him to do in that vision. And so you take the vision that God gave you and you translate it into into a plan for life, a vision for life, not content just with mountaintop experiences with God, but taking those translation and, and translating those experiences into action. They got to do something. I had a friend once lived up the road from me and and he and I liked to build things together. I remember we made a go-kart one time and I would drive it and he would push it. We lived on a hill and we usually ended up crashing. That was, that was all fun. We built a boat one time and he went out and had a little bit of money and bought a uh, small outboard motor for the boat. He put it, you know, how do you test a little boat motor? You put it in a barrel, fill up the barrel with water. Don't you do that? So we did that, fill the barrel with water and the motor cranked right up and ran smoothly. So put it on the boat. He carried it out to the lake one day and put it on his boat and couldn't start it. Brought it back home, worked on it a little bit, put it in the barrel of water, and it cranked right up. Took it back out to the lake, put it on the boat, couldn't start it. Took it back home, put it in the barrel, it cranked right up. Finally, he got fed up with it and decided to sell it. And he sold it without too much trouble. And I asked him how he did that. He said, it was easy. I had the guy come over to the house and watch it run in the barrel. A boat motor that runs in a barrel, but not on a boat, doesn't do a whole lot of good. It's got to do more than that. And a religion that consists of great moments with God, but never works when you launch it out into the ocean of life, is of little value. God gave us a vision, and it has to find some kind of expression in life. And we have to catch that vision given to us by God and then translate it into action. Paul stood before Agrippa trying to convey the wonder, the the majesty of the vision that he had on the road to Damascus. And and I've got to wonder what's going through Agrippa's mind while Paul is, is relaying all this. You know what it says here in verse 24 that Agrippa concluded that Paul was crazy. Paul, you're mad. Your great learning is turning you mad. Verse 25, Paul said, I'm not mad, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking sober truth. People like Agrippa, whose hearts and minds and souls aren't open to the gospel, have a hard time understanding people like Paul, who have a vision. We've got to have a vision. It's essential for survival. It's spawned by faith, sustained by hope, sparked by imagination, strengthened by enthusiasm. Greater than sight, deeper than a dream, broader than an idea. And we know where there is no vision, people perish. Why is that? Because without a vision, without a purpose, there's no reason to live. And we've got to have a vision of winning our world for Christ or we will die without it. So not only do we need to get a vision and then let that vision set our course, thirdly, we've got to keep it alive. 
And that's the challenge. Keep it going. But the problem with visions is that with enough time, they tend to fade. And so what do you do? You, you relaunch that vision. That's what we're doing here right now in our church with, with a new logo and with new material, with new training materials, with new opportunities. We're constantly relaunching and rebroadcasting, rebranding this vision that God has given us so it ever, it's always at the forefront. It's always before us, and it keeps us going. I was on a plane a few years ago, and, and I, you know, when you look at Tifton from the air, I mean, it's beautiful on the ground. It's beautiful from the air. The farms around here, when you look down on them, they look so neat and well laid out, and all the fence rows are so perfect. And I noticed as you go, you know, everything here around Tifton is kind of flat. But as you go north, the farms are terraced and they kind of cut into the contour of the land on the side of the hill. Why do they do that? To avoid erosion. Wind and water coming down the side of the hill gradually remove the rich, productive topsoil from the land. Erosion is silent and slow, but devastating. And the same process occurs in our Christian commitments if we're not careful. Dreams and visions planted in our hearts by God can erode and become as barren as land where all the topsoil has washed away. And we can get sidetracked. And we can have trouble keeping our priorities straight. But we must remember the vision that God has given us of winning our world for Jesus and a willingness to do whatever it takes to make that happen. And we can't let anything take that vision away from us. We've got to fight with all we've got to hold on to it. How do we keep it alive? Paul kept it alive. He was not disobedient to it. He kept living it. He kept acting on it. He kept fulfilling it. He just lived it every day of his life and he stayed close in his relationship with God and kept that relationship fresh and kept that vision fresh and kept obeying it every day from then on. He was going to preach and win people of his world to faith. And it was strengthened every day as fresh as the last person he talked to about Jesus. And so if we're obedient to that vision, we'll carry the gospel into the world. And it's going to be an ongoing one. And where we fail, someone else has got to come up behind us and take up the slack and carry it on future generations and that's what we hope we're establishing here at First Baptist. A series of small, faithful tasks performed day after day, doing what God has called us to do, faithful to his call, keeping his vision alive. Because you don't win the world to Jesus overnight, but you stay at it day after day. And gradually the horizons reach further and further and the visions become more and more a reality. We at First Baptist Tifton haven't been called to be perfect. We haven't even been called to be successful. But we have been called to be obedient. And so we have to be obedient to the heavenly vision. That's what Paul did. He told I guess the most powerful audience he would ever have, King Agrippa, as he was standing there on trial before him. King Agrippa, this is what God did for me. 
And this is why I'm doing what I'm doing for him. And I will not disobey it. A story is told about great preacher A.B. Simpson who went into his study every morning and he had a globe in his study, a world globe. And he gave that globe a spin and he would stop it and put his finger on a spot and pray for the country that his finger was resting on. And then he did that again and again, 10 or 12 times every morning, he spun that globe and put his finger on a country and prayed for that country and his vision for reaching that country for Jesus. And then he would stand to his feet and then pick up that entire globe in his arms and hug it to himself and pray for the entire world. You want to know how you get a vision for the world? You pray for the entire world. You do it every day. And as you pray and as you think about that and as you lift it up to God, it opens your heart and expands the possibilities, that vision of what God can give you to tell the world about him. That's the heart of God I'm talking about here this evening. That's the vision that God gives every Christian, not just Tifton, not just Tiff County, not just Georgia, not just North America. Who does God not love? What boundaries does he want us to put on the gospel? There are none. The vision he has given us is of the whole world, and we cannot stop short of that anywhere, anytime. Our task is to win the world for Jesus, and we've got to be obedient to that vision. Let's bow together. Father, I thank you for mission teams that have gone to Uganda and Kenya and China and Cuba and Guatemala and Brunswick. Um, all points north and south and east and west. I can't think of a place anywhere on the face of our earth that you don't love. I can't think of a single person in our world today that Jesus did not die for. And I thank you that somebody told us about the gospel and that you gave us a vision for sharing that truth with the whole world. We probably won't finish it in our lifetime, but we can sure be faithful every day of our lives that you give us here. And that is our desire because you have given us this vision not only as a church but as Christians. We will never be disobedient to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.